0: Well, hello and welcome to another episode of National Review's Capital Record. I am your host, David Bonson, and I am bringing back on the podcast today the guest who needs no introduction. We certainly have had others that have, uh, you know, enough time under their belt now with Capital Record to probably not warrant a long intro. Those kind of three timers, we might even have a couple... Four timers in there, but none that can be called six timers and now seven, right, Sam?
1: Uh, yeah, I believe so.
0: Yeah, I mean, gosh, it's almost like a co host
1: situation. Although
0: this is our 152nd episode, I believe. We closed 2023 at 150 on the dot. And now, um, Uh, We kicked 2024 off last week with Dan Clifton, a strategist research. If you missed that episode, please do check it out. Really unpacking the political environment and the intersection of public policy and the economy in uh, and and particular focus on markets in uh, 2024. So that was our 2024 launch episode last week. But now I'm bringing Sam back for a similar reason to what we did to launch 2023. And just talk broader picture about the economy, about energy, about a lot of the things that Sam does so well. Sam is a principal at Corbu Research, one of the other macro firms that is um, a daily part of my inbox. Uh, many of you know their managing partner, Rene Ananow, has come on several times. Uh, Sam and I are dear friends with Renee and think the world of his work and Sam's in that same company. Um, Sam, it is a lot of fun to have you back. Uh, seven out of 152 times does not quite get you co host, but it certainly gets you the Saturday Night Live jacket. Perfect. What are what are we um, talking about, Sam, when we hear the expression Mon von Paul? Mon, mon, excuse me, Mon, I'm saying this backwards, aren't I? Mon Vol Pav. Um, tell me this uh, this uh, expression that between your frequent market commentary, um, your macroeconomic point of view of focus and emphasis, you've laid this out a little bit in Bloomberg and other places. Tell listeners of Capital Record what the hell that means.
1: Sure. So it's, it's kind of two parts, right? So there's, there's the first part, which is the price over volume, the POV. And that was this narrative that you really began to see in mid-2022 coming from companies from Carnival Cruise Lines to PepsiCo to Kimberly Clark, which was, we're going to really begin to focus on our pricing strategies. We're not going to be so concerned about maintaining our volume side of the equation. And that really lasted about 18 months. Uh, It really lasted until the end of 2024. And what we began to have for commentary from a number of these CPG companies, right, these consumer facing companies was, ah, you know, it does look like we're getting to the end of our pricing rope and we're going to need to begin to get back some of these volumes in order to really drop more money to the bottom line. It's not that prices are going down. It's that the pricing increases are going to slow back to what they call back to their algorithm, their long-term business plan, which is closer to 2%. Uh, in some cases, it's lower. In some cases, it's slightly higher. But you can kind of just look at it as a, as a 2% number.
0: Okay, one, real quick on that yeah. point, that kind of natural, organic, historical, and you use the term algorithmic increase, is that... Intentional and strategic, or is it just a, a mean that is organically formed over time?
1: Ooh, I would say it's a little bit of both. Uh, it's oh. a little bit. Uh, it's a little bit of a. It works really well because consumers don't tend to push back much against a two, two and a half percent type slow, steady increase over time in prices. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the first part of the top line for a PepsiCo or Kimberly-Clark or some of these, you know, slower growing GDP type companies is, you know, the first one is price and then the other one is volume and your volumes tend to grow in line with GDP. And, you know, you get a little kicker from pricing. So you kind of have a nominal type GDP, uh, growth for their revenues of four to 5% somewhere in there. So I would say it's a little bit of both. It's a, it's a natural thing that feels right for them, uh, and it's something that they don't have to worry about getting pushback from the consumer on.
0: Now, you're, you're still laying this whole thing out, so I want to let you continue with it, but just anecdotally as we go, there's a couple little things that I think are interesting. Economically, Sam, do you think that your comment, which you're 100% right about, people don't tend to push back on 2 2.5% two price increases. That's a number, another way of saying that inflation is not problematic politically at 2%. Because if you're talking about consumer prices going up with certain products 2%, that's all inflation is. If prices weren't going up 2%, there wouldn't be inflation at 2%. That's It's sort of another way of saying the same thing. And 2% inflation has never gotten politicians in trouble, and yet it cuts purchasing power in half over 36 years. So is this because people don't notice it, or is it because of wage growth? That it, mm. wage growth has to be equal, so therefore, quality of life is breaking even.
1: Ooh, that's an interesting. It's an interesting question because, to a certain degree, that two two and a half percent is is kind of the long term, you know, wage increase, or you know, that that we've seen um, across many industries. On the other side, I don't. Labor really hasn't been that significant of an input to. Until recently, for a PepsiCo or a Kimberly-Clark or a Procter & Gamble, uh, you could either outsource uh, and you know make stuff in a cheaper location, uh, or you could automate, and you simply didn't have the type of labor demand that would be, uh, call it inflationary, to your overall cost structure. If anything, labor was one of the places that you could consistently find a little bit of margin. Uh, by either not hiring people um, and just maintaining a steady level of employment or by shipping it off somewhere cheaper and no longer having employees in expensive areas. Uh, So I would say yes, but with the caveat of it wasn't for, call it the 20 years pre-pandemic. Post-pandemic, it has been a much different equation in terms of how much price do we need to put in in order to keep up with the pressure we're seeing from our employees?
0: Yeah. So I, I think, would say there's been the a pro- bit of a I structural the problem, change there. The problem, I think, with your answer is that you switched the actor I was asking about. In other words, okay. the payer of the cost, Pepsi is an example, with outsourcing, with technology, with efficiency. Their labor costs didn't necessarily grow at the same level, but when I was referring to wage growth, I'm referring to, um, the payer of the consumer prices. And so Mm -hmm. if their wages, someone works for ABC and is buying products from XYZ and if XYZ's costs are going up two and a half percent and ABC's payment to them is going up two and a half percent, they're no worse off, Right macro there isn't any question that wage growth and prices have mostly grown in tandem with one another over time with periods of disconnection Um, but do you believe that that story of real wage growth is where you get either angst or not angst about inflation
1: Ooh, yes, certainly. Certainly. Particularly when you have the type of scenario that we had over the past couple of years, right? Where you had wages that were surging and were certainly, you know, picking up strongly, but you also had the cost side of things that was moving up in some cases much, much quicker. Right. The the things that we could see and the things that we buy Frequently, you know, it's pretty easy, right? You have to, all you have to do to understand how the consumer's going to feel is look at gasoline and look at egg prices, right? Those are the two things that consumers tend to buy a lot of, and they tend to pay attention to the pricing of. Um, And so when you had significant surges in gasoline prices, right, every billboard driving down the highway was, you know, up 50, 60, 70%, in some cases in 2022, Then you had a surge in egg prices and people were sitting there going, I was paying $3 for eggs six months ago. Now it's $6.50, $7.00, $8.00, $9.00, $10 a dozen. What's going on here, right? It doesn't matter that their wages were ticking up. They weren't keeping up mentally with the uh, price increases that they were seeing. So yes, the inability of, in some cases, Real wages to keep up with the increase in prices is one of the main things that consumers focus on when they think about how they feel.
0: Okay, got it. Excellent. Continue with this theme that you're laying out with your brilliant acronyms.
1: Yeah. So so now that you've had the price increases largely flow through the system, what you're beginning to see is these corporations really decide, you know, maybe we don't want to keep pushing prices. We're losing volumes, volumes are declining as consumers figure out, either buying less or buying other cheaper products we really need to, you know, kind of go back to what we do longer term. So they're not raising prices as much. And now they're beginning to compete for those volumes back. So we call, you know, I call it uh, the transition from price over volume to price and margin, right? Now they're holding those prices steady and they're going back for some of those volumes as their costs have begun to moderate, if not flatten out in most cases. So they're dropping a lot more of that revenue to the gross margin line. And you're beginning to hear a lot of talk about how they're going to begin to get those volumes back and it's brand building, which is code for, we're finally going to get back and we're going to do some advertising. And we're going to really begin to push for some of our volumes back. So I think this is a very interesting time to be thinking about how the US economy evolves over the next year. Because I simply don't think you're going to have the type of price increases anywhere near the type of price increases we've seen in 22 and 23. But you're going to begin to see the consequence of those price actions flow through to the bottom lines.
0: And that is a positive for corporate profits
1: positive for corporate profits, and it's a positive for the labor hoarding side of the equation. Because if they're, if they're just going to sit there, push for volumes, they're going to need people to at least the current level of employment to maintain those volumes, increase those volumes marginally. Uh, and there's simply no reason to have significant layoffs if you've already survived, call it the worst of the volume declines. So, your big—I would say—it's a real positive on the margin, both for the inflation side of the story and for the continuation of labor hoarding.
0: Is there a labor force out there to be had uh, to meet this push for volume?
1: No, no, there is not. Mm. There's, there simply isn't, and it's, and it's an intriguing one. It's an intriguing question and proposition because I think it really speaks to how much investment you're going to have to have, whether it's uh, whether it's in AI, whether it's in automation. You're going to continue to see that type of actual capital in the ground be needed because that one worker that you have, all of a sudden you need to have them really acting like one point. Two or 1.3 workers. So you're going to invest much more in making those employees that you have more productive, uh, because you don't want to have to go out and pay the current wages in order to get that marginal worker if you could find them. So I think it's it's very much an investment story that flows through a lot of the economy and you get a positive feedback loop from it that we really haven't seen in the post-pandemic recovery yet.
0: And do you believe that this um, dynamic is relevant to the direction of monetary policy?
1: Oh, 100%, 100%. And uh, it's really one of the things that I take a lot of pride in is, it, I think if you pay attention to what companies tell you, you don't just, and you're not just looking at, you know what the CPI came in last month. If you're thinking about the next six to 12 months, People at Darden will go to prison if they lie to you. That's that's the key, right? If the BLS gets let's a couple uh, of let's things let's wrong, let's do a little let's yeah. do a little
0: clarification for uh, listeners. Darden is a publicly traded, let's call it mid cap uh, company that is a hold co for um, some prominent restaurant chains, including Olive Garden, Red Lobster, and now quite. Um, Surprisingly, they acquired Ruth's Chris out of the pandemic, so they have some higher-end chains as well as lower-end, and so what Sam is suggesting is that the people who give you unlimited breadsticks, now keep in mind, and this is just my snobbishness coming out that helped us, you know, get Trump, Uh, I haven't been to an Olive Garden in 30 years, but when I was 16, I didn't know that Olive Garden was disgusting. And uh, Sam is now threatening them with jail time if they if they li- lie on a financial filing. So yeah. I'll let you consider
1: But But kind of to the point, right? There is the potential for jail time if they're lying to you. and Quite, quite you look, literally. And when you look at it, and this is why I'd love to go through these calls, because a lot of times they will give you some of the most valuable insight, right? Whether it's Pepsi, whether it's Kimberly Clark, again, that's toilet paper, that's Frito-Lay. And you look at Darden, Darden came right out and said, we, we don't see taking any pricing action at Olive Garden in 24. That is a 0% price increase for the dining out, right? The food away from home that has been sticky, sticky, sticky at about a 5% year over year type inflation rate. If all of a sudden you're having the some of the largest restaurant chains in America guiding for 0% price increases at very large chains, I think that's a signal of what is to come, right? Particularly with that sticky services inflation we've been is so that a little too with.
0: Is that a little too uh, anecdotal? It's not a fast food chain, right? It's primarily sit-down, kind of mid-level uh, casual dining. Um, it's, it's multi-product, it's multi-sectors, um, a lot of shopping mall, right, type of uh, restaurants, but I don't think we're hearing the same thing, are we, from McDonald's? Yeah,
1: oh yeah. Yeah, you've begun, you really, in the last conference call, McDonald's was talking about how it was becoming much more difficult to push pricing onto the consumers and that they were going to really think about how they were doing their pricing going forward which is fast food code for we may be raising prices, but they're going to be on the margin at best. Similar commentary from Cracker Barrel as well. Um, Interesting. So we, Now, uh, really by the way, begun.
0: out of disclosure, I, I think I'm supposed to say we don't own Darden at my firm. We don't own Cracker Barrel. I don't think I've ever been to Cracker Barrel. Was that the one Buddy Killen used to own? I think, I I can't think maybe I have been to Cracker Barrel. But um, McDonald's has been a prominent company in our dividend growth portfolio that we manage at my firm for 15 years, and I have and I know uh, this company backward and forward. And I have to say, their pricing power through this period has been like something I've never seen in my life, and it's irrelevant to me as a consumer now in 2024, since I will never enjoy. The absolute wonder of a McDonald's French fry again, um, as I uh, resign myself to green juice and other such hellacious travesties, um, uh, getting ready to turn fifty this year. But Sam, have you been to a McDonald's in the last year? Like, do you know what they what it costs to feed a family of five at McDonald's? It's unbelievable.
1: Yeah, I have a family of four who. Um I would say enjoy a happy meal occasionally, particularly when it's daddy's day to entertain them. The Mm -hmm. easiest way to have two happy kids is go get a happy meal and go to the playground. Right. So yes, yes, I I do. I do know how much it costs and it has been, it has been one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen in terms of the longer term ability to push price and really not have pushback. Their traffic was, you know, they, they've had flattish traffic, but you would suspect with the amount of price that they have put into their system that they would have had a significant amount of pushback um, on the traffic side, and they simply haven't seen it. And so it's, it's been a remarkable, remarkable story. Also, it's been a remarkable story on the labor front as well, as they've installed a whole bunch of Kiosks where you order for yourself, you don't actually interact with anybody. That saves them labor time, et cetera. So that that has been another story of how do you grow consistently with a tight labor market? Yana,
0: Um, and so this is not anecdotal. It's McDonald's, it's Darden, it's Cracker Barrel, it's it's a, a whole lot of uh, retail level restaurants. And then on the wholesale side, we're seeing it as well with companies that are delivering products into the marketplace. You mentioned PepsiCo. We could go through other consumer staples that have a similar story there. Um, I do want to anecdotally ask about the labor question you just brought up with McDonald's. They have not had a labor price increase. They've effectively managed the implementation of kiosks and technology Um, So that expands margins as they have price increase, um, what has been growing volumes, maybe it's level volumes, but again, higher prices, level volumes, lower labor cost, that's higher margins. Everything is going great, not to mention, and that's just same store sales, add new store expansion and you have a hell of a business model, not to mention real estate and all the other things that go into that company, which I might add, by the way, is now compounding since going public with reinvested dividends. Are you ready? 71,000%.
1: It's just remarkable. And it's, it's also worth noting that you can depreciate a kiosk. You can't depreciate a human.
0: Um, yes, my wife may disagree, but you are right as a matter of financial accounting. Um, so here's my political question, because I'm a Milton Friedman guy about minimum wage and I enjoy the opportunity to say that $22 minimum wage laws for fast food in California and attempts for $20 federal minimum wage laws a- across the country and certain states that have done or cities, Seattle that have done this, they forced the McDo- McDonald's kiosk revolution. Um, I think I'm right ideologically, but if we're being fair. Would McDonald's have done the kiosks anyways, even if there weren't the cumbersome minimum wage burdens being imposed upon them by Big Brother?
1: Yeah, I mean they've done it. They've done it in states like Texas, right? Texas does not have you know the same type of environment as a New Yorker or California, and they're doing it here, um, and. Kind of to the point, you know. One of the things I like to do is when but, you walk but, but
0: some of the Texas is still in the union, even if you know some of your neighbors don't agree with that. Um, it could have been preemptive in Texas against a federal
1: minimum wage, right? I mean, maybe, but I mean, you haven't really seen much of a movement on the federal side. I mean, you no. hear a lot of hear a lot of talk about it, but you don't see much movement in it. That's right. So, I, I so I don't think you know. I don't think that was so much. I think it was just, it was a really profitable thing to do, right? Yeah. You eliminate two people that are making $13, dollars 14 And you have to remember, I mean, even, you know, even in a place where there's a significant amount of labor supply like Texas, if you want to hire that incremental person, you know, you've got to put 14 $15 up and it becomes pretty tempting to say, Hey, that kiosk. Not only do we just pay for it once, we depreciate it over time. So we have a we have a tax shield coming from it. We don't have to worry about healthcare. We don't have to worry about them showing up sick. There's there's a significant oh, amount or wage of an
0: hour settle or wage and hour settlements, uh, lawsuits, DEI, HR. Um, and then here's yep. the other thing, because I'm a, a human action person. It's a better customer experience. It is. There's le- there's less mistakes with the kiosk than there is with the person behind the counter.
1: Oh, yeah. That's crazy. 100%. And, you know, one of my favorite things to do is go on a lot of road trips with the family. And one of the things I do is I walk in and, you know, on the back of the kiosk, I'm trying to figure out who makes the kiosk. Because if all of a sudden you're going to have that type of uptick in California, you know, it's in, in terms of the hourly wage, one of the better investments over the next couple of years is probably to figure out Who's going to supply the automation? <laughs> yep.
0: Is is that a, um, a diversified answer? There's a lot of competition in kiosk manufacturers. There's a,
1: there's, there's a few. Um, hmm. Off the top of my head, I'm not going to be able to come up with them, but there's a few. And you know, McDonald's appears to have one that they like, and Burger King appears to have one that they like, and so on and so forth.
0: Well, I've uh, distracted you enough, so we go back to your point. There is a benign environment for price power. There is a leveling of prices, but now the ability to press with volume, with marketing, with growth, it requires a labor ramp up in a a diminished labor uh, uh, field, and all of that means what to the Federal Reserve who is attempting to dictate the price of money?
1: Sure. So, and this is where there's a little bit of nuance to my answer. And I'll try to I'll, I'll try to make it pretty clear. Uh, we would be of the opinion that you're going to have a Federal Reserve that's much more concerned about remaining restrictive on the real front over the 2024 and into 2025 uh, timeframe, not necessarily just holding a specific level of rates. Uh, and so that's where we get a little bit uh, call it wonky in terms of our response, we would, we would see the, call it the neutral level at somewhere around 2%. Um, and if you want to be restrictive in a way that doesn't necessarily knock the economy off track over time, you can reduce rates to three and a half, three 3% without really on the fed funds level, without really juicing a lot of the economy. Now, there's a lot of debate over whether you know that's the true level, but in just kind of a you know kind of a stick your finger out there and try to figure it out. It's it's a pretty interesting way to think about it. Now, where I would say it gets a little bit sticky is it gets a little bit weird when you begin to attempt to figure out how fast they go, what they really want to see for inflation before they begin to cut or start talking about cuts in a real and meaningful way and just how deep they're willing to go in terms of those cuts over time. You know, I would think of it as it's very much a 1996 type mentality from the Fed at this point. Uh, the Fed does want to remain tight, but as inflation decelerates and you maintain a level of Fed funds at 525, 550, you're beginning to become very restrictive for the U.S. economy. So I would say that the, the the Fed is going to begin to see a lot of these, a lot of the lack of corporate price pushing as a positive in the data and begin to probably, in the May-June time frame, begin to moderate the level of tightness in the monetary system.
0: Um, <clears throat> Renee had a piece recently about... There, the outlook at Corbu, not really caring that much um, about the uh, three versus six debate. The dot plot of three, Powell basically telling you at the last presser, yeah, there's going to be a minimum of three cuts. The markets have already decided that what he meant was six. Um, I get a little bit frustrated that the media talks about it in terms of quantity of rate cuts. Instead of basis points of rate cuts, because one cut of fifty is is uh, essentially you know going to throw off the math if they do two or twenty five, right? Um, it, it's getting one fifty out of the Fed funds rate doesn't have to be in six cuts. And so I think we should talk about it in terms of the Fed funds rate and the basis points, not the quantity of cuts to get there, because there could end up being nuance. But at the end of the day, are you, I assume you and Renee are aligned on this. Um, If we end the year at 400 basis points or 350 or 425, is it all the same thing?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: It really, it, it, it's really just on the margin that yeah. you're going to see. And you're probably, and it's probably a marginal benefit to housing, for example, but it's a marginal benefit at best. Marginal benefit to autos, marginal benefit to highly rate sensitive sectors,
2: uh, but for the overall economy, it's it's not going to be that big of a deal. This is a message from our friends at American Habits. From the state policy network we the people do you ever think about what that means and what happened to it we the people certainly did not mean an imperial city full of unelected bureaucrats deciding everything from kindergarten curricula to nursing home funding formulas we the people mean self government a free people deciding most things in their families and communities and delegating some authority to their towns and states while passing along just a small amount of that power to the national government how did things get so upside down and american habits We tell stories of real people with real solutions, all working to restore federalism and self-government. If you're a public official, come get involved. If you're a citizen, come and see the new standard for American leadership. No matter who you are, come help us renew the forgotten but not lost habit of American self-government. Visit AmericanHabits.org to learn more. That's AmericanHabits.org.
0: And so the Fed is the number one subject that most of the, um, shall we say, boring vanilla punditry class has in their 2024 market outlook. If you were to read the reports, I say this every year, um, those that grew up in the wirehouse world and the big Wall Street firms know of what I speak, but the genericness that comes from a Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, UBS report where they sort of do a macroeconomic outlook for 2024 and how you could more or less just replace the logos from one report to the next and not be able to tell the difference. Across that level of sort of sell-side Wall Street macro, every one of them is looking to what the Fed will do and the risk of inflation, upside surprises, and so forth. And, And that's not what is in David's and Sam's leading 2024 macroeconomic discussion. It's not will they, won't they? Is it March or is it October? Is it, um, you know, uh, are we getting to 375 or 425? So what is it? If it isn't this, you know, CNBC friendly um, Federal Reserve conversation, what is the biggest issue to you as we enter 2024 in terms of macroeconomics?
1: Uh, for, for me, it's really where does U.S. growth land, right? I don't care about the rate cuts at all. If you have call it a two to two and a half percent real GDP growth with two to two and a half percent inflation and companies dropping more earnings to the bottom line, more cash flows, not laying people off, continuing to hire on the margins, that, that to me is the most important question, right? And it starts with growth. It ends with growth. And that will determine whether or not Fed cuts matter. One, because if you have a economy at two, two and a half, and you know you don't have to worry about Fed rate cuts, it's not going to matter to the bottom line. Um, so, to me, it's where does U.S. growth land, and do we continue to see a robust global economy on the margin? I think that's one of the more underrated parts of the last couple of years is, it's really been the US goes it alone in terms of solid growth. You know, you can toss Mexico in there, you can toss a couple of other countries in there, but really when it comes to the global behemoths of economies, China has been nowhere to be found. And we talked about this last year and we were dead on about it. But China's been nowhere to be found, Europe's been nowhere to be found. Those are the two other massive economies that drive a lot of global growth. India has been there on the margin, but really only on the margin, and they're not big enough to really move the needle yet. Uh, So to me, it's do you begin to see at least a leveling out of the rest of the world and maybe see some acceleration in the underlying growth in Europe or in the underlying growth of China? That would be a significant catalyst. But again, the U.S. just looks like it's a two, two and a half percent type growth economy. That's really, really good. So to me, that's the number one thing. Then, you know, we can talk about it's good in
0: twenty twenty. It's good in 2024, or it would be good if you get that run rate of growth for the next five to 10 years. I mean, is that where we are? That 3.1%, um, if we want to be precise, 3.17% of a post-World War II average is gone forever. Two to two and a half is now, quote, really good.
1: Yeah, I would say that that is true. That is true. You could begin to see a step up if you have a significant capital cycle, if you have a significant CapEx and investment cycle that leads to a product significant gains in productivity. I think you could begin to step back up to the three, three and a half percent level for an extended period of time. Um, We will see if AI is that catalyst. I have some skepticism as to whether or not AI is that catalyst. Uh, But I do think that you put a number of these technologies together and you could have a productivity boom. That's pretty impressive. Um, sometime 2024, 2025, that begins to step up the longer term, or at least the medium term growth rate of the US. Um, It also steps up interest rates, but that's a different story. Uh, So I would say, and this is is the other front, I think it's really an intriguing year in terms of the, I I call it the shadow fiscal, which is the Olympics are coming. Olympics are huge. We haven't had an Olympics um, in a while that wasn't interrupted by COVID. People love the Olympics globally. Uh, so we have an Olympics coming up and we have an election cycle. Both of those are pretty interesting catalysts when it comes to get to hire a bunch of people for elections and you do a lot of advertising and a lot of consumption during the Olympics. So I do think that you're going to have some shadow kind of underlying catalysts for better than anticipated growth as we move through the year. And that's kind of, you know, that's that's second, call it early third quarter and fourth quarter. So you have kind of a back half of the year that has some pretty interesting characteristics to it that I think are being overlooked.
0: So there's two things you brought up that are the heart of the matter when it comes to the growth discussion, and one is global, one is more domestic, and um, that issue about a capex cycle and uh, providing a productivity boon that that gives us some upside opportunity to our real GDP expectation. I want to table that, come back to it, because there's a. this was one of the major themes I wrote about in my annual white paper, um, Year are Behind, You're Ahead, uh, a sort of 20-page um, summary of our view of the markets. I write every year. It doesn't sound, look, feel, read, anything like one of the generic Wall Street reports. But of course, I'm also taking risks because I'm, I'm subject to being wrong on certain things. Um, As we're sitting here talking, Sam, I just completed that writing yesterday. By the time this podcast is out, it will be um, public, and I'll include the the link to the white paper in our show notes. But one of my big themes is the tension that you bring up about CapEx uh, cycle generating productivity growth generating, therefore, greater economic growth. And, and, and I, I think that there's a tug of war in 2024 between deglobalization and CapEx cycle. And I want to come back to it. But first, I don't know how we talk about global growth expectations without talking about China. And this is where a year ago, I put in my white paper that China's COVID reopening was going to put upward demand on oil, upward demand on travel. And just as we already saw in 2022 with Europe and 2021 with the U.S., big, huge societies with hundreds of millions of people reopening tend to go do a whole lot of things. And boy, we are all underestimating what China's reopening will mean. And um, I was writing that along with every single other person in the world. And me... And every other person in the world were wrong as China suffered from a decline in trade volumes, uh, decline in market share of being a trading partner with certain Western countries, most prominently the United States, uh, decline in the trade deficit that the U.S. runs, resulting in a lower current account deficit, uh, providing less dollars for China to repatriate into U.S. treasuries. Uh, decline, obviously, in their property sector, which has been overly stimulated and intervened and distorted and bubbled. And so I wonder if your view is a bullish because China is going to pull a fiscal stimulus card and and, uh, get a lot of growth out of some healthy stimulus like deregulation, and some maybe unhealthy stimulus like distorting their property markets. And then will they go full-blown Japanification? Will they actually go to a zero-rate policy? In a world that talked incessantly in 2023 about Fed rate hikes, EU, UK, Canada, rate hike, rate hike, rate hike, China cut. Now, they only cut like 10 to 15 bips at a time, but they did like seven cuts. I think they got 130 out of their um, primary policy rate. Um, is China headed to a decade of Japanification?
1: Ooh. I think it's really difficult to answer that question because China's so much different in terms of its economic structure than Japan was. Japan you know, we, we do pick on Japan for Japanification, but at the same time, the underlying growth, when you kind of look at, you know, GDP per person that works, you know, Japan's actually been a pretty interesting story. Um, And it has great corporate governance and it has, you know, a number of other things going for it that China simply does not, right? I think it was last year, you and I discussed um, that neither one, you know, neither one of us wanted to put money in China. for 2023 because you know you didn't need to and you had no idea what was going to happen to it i think that's a big difference between japan and china um china's chinification is much much worse than japanification ever was japanification is is something where you still know that you're going to have good corporate governance you're not going to have uh your tech leaders disappear um you're going to have a central bank that, you know, is, you know, while, you know, we can kind of pick on their policies, you know, you're going to have a central bank that is pretty well run. Uh, When it comes to China, you just have no idea what is going to happen. You don't know if the property sector is going to be bailed out or if everyone's going to be arrested. You don't know if the, if Tencent's, CEO is going to be available for the entire year, or if there's going to be a disappearance for a couple of months. Uh, So to me, I would say the Chinification of China is much, much worse than Japanification ever was.
0: So you would say that the threat of a CEO disappearing for a few months is bad governance.
1: (laughs) Yes, I would say it's bad corporate governance, bad governance from the top down. Yes, I would say that that is probably the best example of a poor environment for business. Um,
0: It's interesting because I kind of... Unless you're in Russia and
1: then you fall out a window.
0: Yeah, right, right. I I kind of agree uh, with the category that you're using to make the statement that Chinification is worse than Japanification in terms of what it means to governance and particularly the corporate sector, Um, I think in a macro sense, the violence of monetary policy interventions in Japan will be significantly worse than anything we ever see from the People's Bank of China. I don't think that China will go to years of negative interest rates. I don't think that they will go they I mean, really, Japan taught Bernanke quantitative easing, right, bond buying um, is, is a, as a significant meeting policy tool was really brought to the world by Japan, yield curve control had been done elsewhere, including the United States post World War, but uh, nobody has done it as a just sort of constant, the way that Japan has. So I think the notion of using monetary policy um, and getting to a point of pushing on a string, I'm not sure that anyone can ever do it to the way that Japan did it. I mean, uh, I'm gonna have to reframe my financial vocabulary if Japanification becomes a second tier player in the world of using policy to points of diminishing returns.
1: Yes, the one the one interesting part about Japan over the last we'll call it thirty years is until very recently it was a one way trip to a stronger yen, even with all of their monetary policy that they were putting in place, buying ETFs, buying up the entirety of the bond market. I mean, it was a one way trip for the yen from what ninety two to twenty twenty ish. I mean it went from north of 250 to 100. I mean it was it was a pretty it's a pretty interesting study on just because you have a country that is doing monetary policy and keeping call it the zero lower bound as the zero lower bound and the rest of the world is not. You don't necessarily have the textbook currency movements that you would expect. I think that's a really it's kind of an interesting side note.
0: Well, I agree. It's interesting. I also think it's humbling to those that um, are used to the knee jerk reaction. I think it's somewhat pedestrian, but I think you and I have seen it our whole professional careers. People will see something bad in a country or bad in an economy and immediately go, oh, that currency's screwed. And if people have gotten the yen wrong over the last 20 years, how much have, worse have they gotten the dollar wrong? Yeah. And, and no. we talked about this in one of our last podcasts together. Um, the inability to appreciate the relative nature of Forex and the inability to uh, understand the difference between a reserve currency and a transactional currency, um, and of the way in which the yen carry trade drove so much hedge fund activity for so long. I think all of these things invite a nuance that if I were someone who wanted to just simply go say, oh, the dollar is going to collapse, buy gold. Um, I would stop myself because people have been taken to a graveyard of humility for these stupid calls over the last couple of decades.
1: Yeah. And they just keep making them. It's they incredible. just keep making them. Yeah. Just, it's, it's absolutely stunning.
0: I actually think that part is intentional, that the grift in some of that stuff is rather remarkable in its um, accuracy for their market. That, in other words, those false prophets have figured out that they pay no price for being wrong, that their customers of their fear-peddling newsletters or whatever market they're in want to hear the stuff they're saying so badly that they will never suffer for being wrong. They will only suffer for not continuing to say it. And it's, it's a very interesting thing about the perma bear world. I don't know how I got on this tangent, but it is one of my favorite uh, hobby horses. Um, I loathe people that give financial advice with no skin in the game. I loathe it with every ounce of breath in my body. Preach. Um, <clears throat> podcast listeners don't get the benefit of video. Sam and I are throwing our arms in the air celebrating in this uh, agreement. Um, okay, so gro- economic growth. Let's go to this this issue. Uh, tell me where I'm wrong, because I may be. And if I am, you'll know so. And I respect your intelligence more than mine. Sam, deglobalization is being heralded as a predicate to uh, potential reshoring and onshoring and and nearshoring and a capex cycle and a particular boon to productivity there is some degree of policy involved whether it's chips act or inflation reduction act or some green energy or whatnot there is a massive increase of factories being built so you see on one hand all this opportunity the upside of maybe a capex cycle leading to productivity some of it may be distortive I don't want to get in the politics of it but but again our point economically here is just will this or will it not represent an extra point of real GDP growth uh, yet the premise was deglobalization and I want to remind people that globalization only happened because it a opened up more markets B, cut costs for how things could be made and delivered and C created more customers. I don't just mean more markets in point number one about the customer base, but the ability to um, expand the supply chain around a more optimal division of labor, comparative advantages, commodity allocations, et cetera. And then number three is different than number one in the sense of just more buyers, of products and so if deglobalization is leading to some of these things that could be good all of which i agree with all of which i'm on the same page as you and renee all of which i'm probably about the same level of optimistic i do think some of these things could be a capex cycle that we all know has been lacking since the financial crisis the non-residential fixed investment component of gdp has not come. The only thing that ever moved it up a little bit was Trump's corporate tax cuts and repatriation of foreign profits and bonus depreciation. It got us a little bit of increase in that uh, realm in the calendar year of 2018. But how do we not account for the cost of deglobalization when we think about the upside of a CapEx cycle?
2: Hmm.
1: So I would I would say I don't think we need to ignore the cost side. The cost side is, in a lot of ways, also part of the boom um, in terms of when you build a factory, it's going to cost you something. You're going to have a lot of people building that factory, and then you're going to have a lot of people working in it. Uh, so the cost side is also part of the growth side <clears throat> in a weird Oh, yeah, but hold on. Now, you had that and before, then, though. Yes.
0: You had it before. It's just it was cheaper. Otherwise, it wouldn't yeah. have happened.
1: Yeah. The only, the only difference is instead of making the stuff in China where you were paying less for labor, you're now building the factory in Tennessee where you're going to have a few people working there and a whole bunch of robots. So it's not, it's not the same. It's not the same division in terms of the production mechanism, right? You don't have as much labor. You have a lot more capital going into that production cycle. Um, so I would say that there's probably going to be an uptick in terms of the cost. But the question is, does the cost really move that much higher simply because you're building it in what would be considered a higher cost environment for labor, but you're not going to use anywhere near as much labor? So I think there's, there's I, would, I, I go back and forth on that. I would say that uh, corporations aren't stupid. They're going to build that factory. They're going to put a lot of robots in it and a few people Uh, so you're going to have a significant shift that's going to be problematic again for a place like china where you know a lot of the reason for their growth was that there was so much labor employed and now you're having a shift on that back to mexico the us etc where labor is not that much more expensive in mexico than it is in china shipping costs are a lot lower to the us than they are from china Uh, So you do get some cost savings in the supply chain side of things. You get shorter shipping times, et cetera. So you can do a little bit more on the inventory front. So there's a lot of ways that you can kind of shift around the cost structures. I'm not sure the cost structures are going to be that significant. The other side, and I think this is really an interesting one, is we had the announcement that Nippon Steel, a Japanese uh, company, was uh, making a bid for U.S. steel uh, at a much higher price than people anticipated. $55 a shares, huge, huge number. And there was a little bit of confusion as to why in the world they were doing that. Um, But when you go through the Synergy report, they put out a big PDF on Nippon, put out a big PDF on their website. When you go through it, they call out two things. They call out cheap energy and significant structural demand for steel in the US that cannot be met by domestic production. So in other words, what is Nippon Steel looking at? They're looking at a place that's cheaper to make steel than it is in Japan. They're likely going to invest more in US steel because it's a cheaper place to manufacture because of the energy costs. And when you think about energy costs in Asia and Europe right now, you can you don't have to you know, think very hard to consider it's going to be a long-term advantage for the US um, on the energy front. I think there's a number of these little underlying trends that we tend to overlook, but are very, very powerful. And if you have the number four steel producer buying the number twenty-seven steel producer at that large of a premium, I think it's a pretty significant uh, indication of where things potentially could go. In terms of again, that's that's this call it deglobalization, but also a globalization in a way, right? Where you have friendly countries saying listen the us is a great place to do business energy is cheap we can automate we can buy their stuff you know we can buy their companies let's do that i think you're going to continue to see that type of investment in the us that isn't necessarily new fresh capital in the ground but is you know basf you know um a chemical company in Uh, Germany, if they're finding it very, very difficult and expensive to manufacture in Germany, guess what, they're probably going to consider going someplace friendly with cheap energy. That's the US. So I think there's, you're going to see a uh, potentially see a pretty interesting dynamic where the US again becomes a very attractive place to do business, not just um, because of, you know, the large domestic economy, but because of the manufacturing cost side of things.
0: So there is a opportunity even in the um front end concern, the um what could go wrong in the capex cycle thesis? What could go wrong with the boon to productivity? I would have said and I wrote about this last year that we could build the factories, get ready to make the widgets and have no workers show up uh, because I do continue to grieve over our cultural epidemic of a declining labor uh, force, declining labor participation, particularly from prime working age males, um, age 25 to 54. I think that that number is um, at a depressingly dangerous level um, and yet you're not worried about that economically because, as you point out, they're going to build warehouses in Tennessee that get manned by robots.
1: Yeah. No, and I, uh, to be clear, I do think it's a societal issue. I'm not as concerned about yeah. it from an economic perspective, uh, but I do think that there's a societal issue of I don't have to work, blah, 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 which is the antithesis of everything I was raised on. Uh, so it is, mm. it is, in my mind, one of the more distressing parts of uh, the US economy over the next 20 to 30 years, I just don't see it as being something that's really going to be problematic, I would say problematic in terms of the economic growth over the next 10 to 20 years, where I think it could become, and this is, you know, again, a longer term thing, but I think it could become problematic if the US I don't think we Japanify. That's not really my concern about the US economy, my concern is more of a Europe, Europe of the United States, where we become much more of a um, handout society. And that becomes increasingly expensive and takes away our production advantage, whether that's uh, through taxation, whether that's through higher energy costs, higher interest rates are all three, I think that's, you know, the longer term, that's really what I would say can really knock off the potential for the u s. economy over the next thirty to fifty years.
0: Well, uh, Sam, I feel like you've given a pretty balanced perspective, very nuanced, thoughtful. twenty twenty four the good, the bad, the re- the 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 lay of the land. Um, close us out with, with not your long-term concern of things that could go wrong. The European handout society model is certainly one that exists as sort of an evergreen threat. I'm not, by the way, totally convinced it's that different from Japanification in the sense of, I think that European threat represents a way in which the problem of Japanification gets dealt with. There's sort of a, a, a negative feedback loop in a society uh, that has gone the path we've gone, um, but that's a broader subject for a different day. In 2024, what's the one thing that would keep you up at night? And and I will I'll go first if you don't mind because whenever people ask me what keeps me up at night, I always say I sleep really well. And so, if you mean it literally, the answer is nothing, because I have a family that loves me. I'm grateful to be born, raised, and living and doing business in the United States of America. Uh, as At this time, my health is good. I've literally gone like four days without any McDonald's french fries. So things are good. I'm sleeping well. But if what you really mean is just what are the different economic concerns, my answer is they're things I don't know about. Because if they were things that we already knew, um, I would be able to process it, risk manage it, think about it, maybe even hedge it, maybe not. Uh, I would certainly be able to account for it into an asset allocation, right? It's the unknown things. And so people say, well, what if Trump is imprisoned? Or what if uh, the country's social unrest worsens? Or what if the Fed does this? Or what if the you know China does that? Um, I think those things are just talked about so much that they are definitionally not black swans. Black swans are just not things that we talk about all the time. But what are things that maybe are not talked about that are worthy of your concern, even if it is not keeping you up at night? Mm
1: -hmm. Well, it's a very similar answer to the one that you had. The the nuance for me is I I think what keeps me up at night is that I'm not – Optimistic enough, uh, particularly <laughs> about that. the U.S. economy. I, I I think that's really something that that you know I I'm very aware that you know it there's an awful lot of upside risk you know because markets aren't stupid. Markets already have priced in a very significant chance of Trump becoming president and of Trump being in prison. Those really are those really risks. If the market has priced that in already, they're probably not. Is there really a significant um, shock from all of the things that we read every day in the news? No, I mean a lot of that is already priced in. We have Ukraine, Russia priced in. We have Middle East conflict priced in. Uh, the question is again, what you know? What's the big hiccup that can you know, go the other way. And to me, it's the US economy continues to thrive and catch everyone off guard. And we simply have a much better year than anybody is anticipating, right? Everything that we talked, everything we heard last year was recession, 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 everything we're going to hear this year, is recession, recession, recession. And I think we've largely talked ourselves out of it. So I think the the thing that keeps me up at night is not being bullish enough.
0: Uh, Sam, that is one of the most nuanced and thoughtful answers I've ever heard on that subject, and I wish more people understood it. There is a uh, permanent condition in our business of people believing they sound smarter by being negative. It's also a condition of people at bars and, and, and cocktail parties and backyard barbecues. You just sound smarter being negative. And I thought your answer that was concerned about not being positive and optimistic enough sounded very smart. Thank I am you. I am very grateful for you and your work. And what a wonderful discussion. I think I may even have you on Capitol Record again.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Look forward to it. Thank you, Dave.
0: Thanks, Sam. Happy New Year.